0: Welcome, everyone, to Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game, personally and professionally. And I am jazzed and excited. We've got Jeremy on the show today. He's the Director of Executive Education at Stanford's D School and the Adjunct Professor at Stanford's School of Engineering. He is the co-host of the D School's widely popular program, Stanford's Masters of Creativity. He's also the co-author of Idea Flow, The Only Business Metric That Matters. Which I have had my head buried in. Thank you for sending the book. It is, uh, it is awesome. So I can't wait to jump in. Jeremy, welcome.
1: Thanks. Great to be with you, Mark.
0: Before we get into all the magic you're creating on this world, uh, the show starts with the same same question that and everyone gets this. And this is just to avoid all of the titles. I just basically you know uh, uh, voiced in the bio, and that's just to understand like who you are. So that that's the question. You know who. Who are you without all of that stuff?
1: The simplest word that I've found, uh, I discovered actually through a Disney Imagineer who ran a session at a conference I was attending, Black Sheep Conference for Creative Black Sheep. Um, and she was running this exercise and she had us kind of say all of our identities or labels. And surprisingly, the thing that unexpectedly encompassed my self as student i'm a student and i find that that's actually an increasingly important identity uh to to foreground especially now especially having published a book especially running workshops and teaching and things like that because my observation is in many of the rooms where i show up or where i'm invited the expectation is that i'm going to teach or i'm going to say something and One, I can fall prey to that. Oh, yeah, I should say something or, you know, which is its own problem. But two, I find that if I don't make time for my own learning, the world's not making time for me to learn, you know, and I find that that being mindful of that student identity or that student hat is really critical because it helps me remember when I'm showing up what not in a selfish way, but in a in a in a humble way, what don't I know? What can I learn here, um, and and furthermore, even just from my calendar, am I carving out time where I'm learning rather than just where I'm sharing the things I've already learned? I find that it's a very important identity to preserve and to nurture.
0: I love it. I mean, you you found this, you found the secret to my heart with those questions. I mean, already we're jumping into really powerful, awesome, reflective questions. Uh, I'm curious. Like, have you always identified as a student or someone curious in, in that realm? Or was there, was there, was there a moment where something
1: like flipped for you? You you know, I don't think that I have thought of myself as that actually, interestingly enough. Um, I actually hated school. Um, I hated school all growing up. The only class I loved was a poetry analysis class because I think because my teacher loved it, Mrs. Cook. (laughs) Shout out to Mrs. Cook. If you ever hear this. Mrs. Cook. um, But she's amazing. And she had a passion for poetry and for literary analysis. And it bled over to me. But and that's not to say that other teachers didn't have passion, but uh, for whatever reason, I didn't catch it. And then I went to college and I studied finance, because I could test out of the most classes, you know, and Mm. every successive year of my program that I studied, I thought, no, I hate this class more than any class I've ever taken. But I kept doing it, right? Why? Because I was good at it, and supposedly, if you're good at something, you should do it, right? And yeah. it's kind of the almost the Ricky Williams syndrome of sorts, right, where where one's capabilities um, uh, foreshadow or overshadow their interests, their passions, et cetera. And so, yeah, for me, being a student is actually something that came later in life i when i went to business school you know fast forward a, a bit in my career when i came to business school i actually enjoyed it for the first time and i think it was because there was a lot more self-directed learning and then when the pandemic hit, I would say my identity as a student kind of crystallized for me when the pandemic hit, because one, I had a little bit more free time. I was traveling a lot in my role as leading executive and running, you know, capacity building initiatives for organizations around the world. All travel ceased. And Hmm. all of a sudden I was able to go back to not just literature, but history. And I was able to dig into a lot of fascinating Stories and history that I just hadn't created space for, and at, around the same time I started blogging. And I think one, one thing that's kind of interesting is, just like they say, nature abhors a vacuum. I find a blog abhors, um, you know, complacency. Okay. Uh, and I, what, what you find if you start blogging is you got to be really thoughtful about seeking fresh inputs because otherwise yeah. you're just going to keep writing the same thing over and over again. So all of a sudden it was like it was like somebody attached a vacuum to one end of me so to speak and it was sucking and i and then that created suction on the other end and what i realized once there was suction on the other end was i love learning this stuff i love learning about yeah. ben franklin and ada lovelace and you know and these amazing innovators who um i started studying at that time and i think that as I developed that passion. Then I started a podcast focused on female founders. I've got four daughters. And I realized as I was telling them stories about creativity and innovation, the stories I was drawing on were a bunch of men mostly. Hmm. And and then I started searching, are there books about women innovators or inventors? And and then kind of haphazardly, I invited a friend of mine, an amazing engineer and now venture capitalist, Mar Hershinson, would you just interview female founders with me? Cause I want to be stocking my well of stories of amazing women doing cool things. And so anyway, all that say there were kind of a series of successive events in my life where student became one of the badges that I wore in certain spheres. And I, I realized I started looking forward to that hour, for example, for the interviews of these female founders, I started looking forward to that hour most in my week because mm. I realized it's not my job to know something. It's my job to learn and it's somebody yeah. else's job to be the expert, right? And that was a very refle- refreshing and replenishing experience that was totally unexpected.
0: It's amazing. It's, it's uh, fascinating, inspiring. I mean, I just, I, I can't help but think of that, that loop. And this is something that I remember this came up with, uh, with James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. We talked about this, about just like, you, you have to balance the, like, the inputs To then get to the output, especially with writing, right, and you've got to watch kind of that. Like, it's it's easy to go down the route of like over indexing on the input and just consume and consume and consume. Um, So you've got to watch, but you can't do one without the other,
1: right? Totally, totally. You got to have a practice for both, and it's it's interesting, right? To To realize, I would say generally speaking, so I started started this whole kind of story on blogging as kind of like an outcome thing. What I've realized actually, which is fascinating, is if left to my own devices, I would just sit around and read all the time. Yeah. I love, you know, reading stories and things like that and having, and by the way, it's just, it's a private commitment. It's not like no one's paying me for it. It's not a job, but having kind of a personal commitment to myself every day, I'm going to try to share one story or insight or research or something. What it's done is it's actually moderated my intake uh, or Mm -hmm. my consumption a fair amount. I almost think about it like, um, exercise and eating, right? If you only eat, you become obese right? Yeah. If you only exercise, you'll kill yourself, right? There's this healthy so balance true. of input and output. And for me, my tendency is toward kind of uh, obesity probably. <laughs> and so having in the rest kind of the, of the output, world, <laughs> it, that, that output discipline is actually, it's really, cause you know, like say I only have 30 minutes in a day. Well, it takes me about 30 minutes to write a blog post, right? And yeah. so Uh, Left to myself, I'm always going to default to the, you know, to Tony Fidel's new book or whatever, or your book, right? Whatever book I've got from Amazon, it's, it's more relaxing to me to read, but left to my own devices, I just read and read and read and read and read and I just get, you know, fatter and fatter and fatter. And by the way, the other thing I've noticed is I forget that stuff. You know, what's crazy is the stuff I remember is the stuff I write about because it takes that extra measure of synthesis and the extra measure of connection. And so to me, besides just moderating my kind of caloric intake, so to speak, it's also been a fantastic way of reinforcing my own learning and reinforcing my own understanding of some of the things that I would otherwise probably just overindulge on. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I love the examples. And I mean, I suffer from the same uh, knowledge, obesity, let's call it uh, that that you do. But, I mean, the one thing, though, and you probably realize this with your, your podcast as well. Um, thankfully, you, you know, and your book is a part of this. I mean, in order to prepare, obviously, for this interview, I've, I've, I've dove in. So t- to your point, like there's only so many hours in the day. So I typically look, I'm like, okay, who are the guests coming up? And if there's books associated to the, then it least it takes away or focuses at least my reading in, in some capacity, uh, which has been super helpful because other than that, I mean. Uh, hey, where Amazon do you go? Where is, do you start? It's, so fa- it's uh-huh. too easy, right? <laughs> books just keep totally. arriving. Um, totally. I would love, um, before we get into the book, I'd love just to set some context for people that are listening
1: that may not know, but what is like, what is D School? So, the D School is a hub for interdisciplinary collaboration at Stanford. If you think about most academic environments, you know, PhD kind of being the culmination of study, it's All of the bets, or the majority of the bets, are going deeper and deeper into respective fields of knowledge. And the D school is basically Stanford's side bet on breadth, going broader and collaborating across boundaries. So we sit as a hub in the middle of the university where folks from business school, you know, the first class I ever taught back in 2009, I had a student from all seven graduate programs at Stanford in my class, which is pretty cool, right? So you got lawyers, doctors, engineers, business people, earth scientists, et cetera, et cetera. And it just makes for this rich melting pot of learning. And the kinds of problems we tackle, the kinds of projects we tackle are the kinds of projects that don't fit Neatly within a, any one disciplinary area. But uh, what happens when you got a project like that, like say food insecurity, right? Is that a business problem? Is it a legal problem? Is it a met? It's kind yeah. of everything, right? And so what we noticed early on is radically diverse teams don't have a language for interdisciplinary collaboration. Right, is this you know, if it's clear it's a business problem, then the MBA whips out the spreadsheet. If it's clear it's a legal problem, then the it, lawyer whips out the torts or wh- whatever it is, right? Um, but when it's not clear whose problem it is, the question becomes, well, whose expertise should we default towards? And for mm-hmm. us, our belief is. Offering this language of how designers think, design thinking is essentially, it's a, it's a methodology for rapid learning and problem solving and borrowing heavily from the practice of design. But now it's for, you know, everyone. And the the point is we offer that the way a designer approaches a problem with a radical human centeredness, radically experimental and, and, um, doing in order to learn, taking a bias towards action, et cetera, et cetera we offer that as a language for these radically diverse teams to maximize their respective contributions to the problem-solving process
0: fascinating it just must i mean for you just being so involved and and seeing so many different you know challenges and opportunities and and walks of life and people and and all of that like it just must be so inspiring it
1: keeps your mind just trained to to thrive i imagine Yeah. It's, it's, it's a special place. I I like to say I'm a, I'm a front row student in the coolest classroom in the world. No
0: kidding. So is this where, is this where the book idea flow and just the whole concept behind idea flow was birth? Like, is this, how did
1: it all come to be? Yeah. So ultimately what we're always trying to do is become more effective in solving problems and solving better problems for that matter. And I, I think that, you know, some of the things that we observe is we, we have the privilege of being brought into organizations, working with leaders, working with teams, working with entrepreneurs in the accelerator context, working with students, et cetera. We run different programs at Stanford and then programs outside of the university. And one of the things that we saw time and time again was underappreciated is the volume of material required to innovate, Mm-hmm. And this is some research that our, uh, our colleague, Bob Sutton at Stanford conducted, that he, what he basically found is if you want to get to a commercial success, you need a lot of ideas. I mean, Linus Pauling said that, right? The individual who's won the Nobel Prize twice. He said, to get a good idea, you need a lot of ideas. But the, the thing that we observed is people dramatically underestimate how many a lot is. Oh, yeah. And when we realized a lot is a lot more than you think then the question becomes, well, how do we generate a lot more than I think I need? What are the practices and mindsets and modes of acting and interacting? If we foreground volume as kind of the um, the foundational premise that drives a lot of breakthrough thinking, which is true, you know, Dr. Dean Keith Simonson just won a lifetime achievement award from Minsa, which is you know to to win a lifetime achievement award from the organization that awards IQ points you got to be pretty sharp <laughs> and his studies across fields basically find that the single greatest the variable that affects the quality of one's ideas the most is actually the quantity of ideas they have which is so a lot of people mm. you know anywhere we go in the world people say how do you come up with a good idea we'd say that's actually the wrong question yeah yeah. The right question is how do you come up with more ideas? Sure. And paradoxically, oftentimes the way to come up with more ideas is to push yourself to come up with bad ideas. So you could say the way to come up with good ideas is to come up with bad ideas, which just you know boggles the mind. Yeah, right? yeah. But <laughs>
0: it's ideas. It's 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 to you know to to hit drive and go right and just go for it. But I find yes. like and, yes. and you guys cover this in the book at one point as well, but. And I've lived this, you know, when I I was in the corporate world and whatnot, and I see this now too, working with teams from a mental fitness perspective, it's like, it's almost like people are scared of ideas or the brainstorm as, you know, as it's called, right? Right. Why? What's behind this? Or how do we get around this to position it in a different way?
1: Well, you know, one thing is simple definitions help. Sure. So if I say come up with an idea like most people give me a deer in the headlights look because what they so and there's a couple of reasons one they're thinking in terms of good ideas I didn't say yeah. come up with a good idea I said come point. up with an idea right so so one there's kind of this immediate quality filter where it's like I can't think of an iPhone on the spot it's like I didn't ask you to think of an iPhone right so that's one thing but then the <laughs> second thing is idea is this super nebulous what is an idea, right? How do you define it? It comes almost down to definitions, right? I mean, I've got a five-year-old daughter who I understand asks more questions than any human being on the planet, right? (laughs) Um, Which is true. Yeah. If she she asks me, daddy, what's an idea? I can't give her some neurological explanation. That's not useful for her, right? And what, what we've discovered based on our understanding of the underlying neuro research is, an idea is just a connection, Mm-hmm. very simply right and what i mean by that is when we think of idea we think in terms of new but when we think in terms of new we often think it comes from nothing it turns out the brain can't make something from nothing it doesn't yeah. happen what the brain does is it connects things it already knows you can almost think about it like two lego pieces coming together right so easy example i've got a uh i've got a friend working at a electric vehicle company that will remain nameless working on uh, addressing range anxiety. Right. So this, this fear of how far can I get on a charge? Okay. This is a challenge that she's been working on. She said she's at a coffee shop the other day. She overhears a couple of folks in military fatigues talking about how for jet fighters, they have a small fuel tank. They can't go far, but they can't scramble back to the base during combat. They do what's called a mid air refueling. Mm. And, If you just stop for a second, like if, and if a listener is basically conscious, if a listener's conscious, what they realize is they just had an idea. We just collectively had like a, like this hallucination called an idea where we go, wait, range anxiety, mid air refueling. And we just clicked those two pieces. Have you ever, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's an idea. It's a connection between, by the way, you already, you know, existentially probably knew about mid air refueling and existentially you knew about. Range anxiety is a phenomenon. I just brought them close enough together that the brain does what it does, which is it snapped them together and said, Oh, on the Yeah. Yeah. That's an idea. So when you real so all that to say, going back to your question, what stands in the way or why are why are people intimidated by a brainstorm? One is they um They immediately think of good rather than, you know, without regard to quality. Two, they don't know how to define an idea. And then I think three, especially in the context of an organizational setting, they've been almost um, inoculated. Because they participated in like this quote unquote thing called a brainstorm. And it's it's been so ineffective in their past that the notion of being invited, like nobody's like stoked to get the email saying (laughs) brainstorm in the conference room, right? People are like, oh, they roll their eyes, like, do I have a sick kid? Like, can I get home? You know, (laughs) the reason is because they've seen that that doesn't work. Right. So all that say, there's a bunch of kind of phenomena. Yeah play there around quality, around definitions, around norms and historical experiences that just almost doom a brainstorm from the get. Yeah.
0: Hello, friends. Given you're here, I'm making the assumption that you're motivated to be mentally fit. So with that in mind, I want to let you know about the Better Questions newsletter, which publishes once or twice a month, providing all of us the opportunity to slow down, think and ask better questions. As you know, quality questions are my thing and this is an opportunity to share the prompts I've studied and curated to help our minds be healthier, clearer, more intentional and expand our mental capacity. You can sign up over at behindthehuman.com newsletter, which will also give you a preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. That's behindthehuman.com newsletter. Now back to the show. Well, so I love the I love the notion of of these connection points, and I guess the the follow up question I have on that, you know, and and setting the 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 environment or tone of most people and myself included, and I'm sure you fall victim to this as well. But there's so much going on, uh, internally and externally, that our minds keep getting packed full and full and full. That you know, it's hard to. It's hard to think clearly when you're in like fear states and worried about something and then you're getting right, hit right. with news and so forth. So I'm just curious when you're working with teams and, and or individuals, how do you guys s- set up the internal environment to be conducive to form those con- like allow those connection points to surface?
1: So there's a there's a lot there. Um, and I won't give a comprehensive answer, but I'll give a simple answer that sure. we could dig into more. I would say don't expect everything to happen at once. So a lot of times there's like the brainstorm and the brainstorm is we're going to get together. We're going to describe the problem. We're going to generate solutions. We're going to select and we're going to commission or not. Or or we're going to you know have another meeting. Right. Something <laughs> like that. And all of that kind of happens at one time. And, you know, to your point about fear, to your point about bombarded, all of those things that dynamics at play, the research suggests, you know, to do what we call an innovation sandwich, which is Hmm. you alternate between individual and group work and you alternate multiple times. So a better way to think about it rather than like this kind of one shot, uh, interaction is, okay, let's give folks a prompt, you know, Hey, um, uh, sales are plateauing in the you know on the East Coast. You know what can we do to reinvigorate the pipeline on the East Coast? I don't know. Whatever, right? Give the prompt, um, allow people to think about it in advance of the meeting. Then when you come to the meeting, so that's an individual activity, right? You come yeah. to the meeting, have folks share ideas, but but have some rules in place that govern the collaborative divergent moment around deferring judgment, around listening with positivity, building on the ideas of others, going for safe space. Of your- yeah. All that stuff, right? So we, I mean, we go into all that. It's not to diminish it, but it's, I don't want to derail for a moment. But then importantly, at the end of that meeting, don't make a selection. One of the things that's most fascinating is one of the most fascinating pieces of research we encountered in the writing of this book is the creative cliff illusion. And what that study has demonstrated is folks perceive their creativity will reach a point of precipitous decline. It's the cliff, right? So their creativity, there's a point at which it just drops off. That's it. There's no more creative ideas, right? And the reason the paper is called the creative cliff illusion is because that's not true. Once creativity doesn't decline over its time. And furthermore, you can actually experience a creative ramp if you expect better ideas to keep coming. And that's a big if one of the single greatest variables is do uh, one of the single, you know, highest correlated variables with the ultimate quality of an individual or a team's ideas was the extent to which they expected ideas to come early or late. So the more a team or individual expected good ideas to come early, the worst ideas they had categorically, the more with every notch that they agreed with, we expect better ideas to come later, the better ideas they had in total. And so the best way to end the meeting is to say, we're not going to select yet. Next week we're going to meet. We'll talk about all the ideas we've come up with now. And importantly, we'll talk about all the ideas that we're going to come up with between now and then because our expectation, folks, is that the best ideas this group is going to generate haven't been generated yet. And what we'd like to invite you to do is instead of make a decision arbitrarily right now, we'd like to invite you to consider the possibility you're going to think of a better idea based on some of the things we've discussed today. And we get back together next week. We can share all of our better ideas as well as review all of these. We're not losing these ideas, but let's decide to not decide yet.
0: Mm. That just, just that alone just takes so much. I, I feel it just takes so much pressure off of the process, yes. right? And lets the mind just
1: breathe. Well, that's, I mean, this is, there's, you know, this psychological kind of framework here of, you know, of a breakthrough moment of a light bulb moment is basically four steps four stages right one is preparation then one is which in which the mind becomes aware of a challenge right second is incubation where the mind you know considers and mulls it over etc the third is illumination the aha the light bulb that's where light bulb comes from illumination and then the fourth is verification whereby you, you you know test and see whether it's correct okay the the thing is, in this day and age, when we're hyper-productivity oriented, hyper-efficiency oriented, you know what gets the short shrift is incubation, is time to marinate. And what you're trying to do there structurally with the innovation sandwich is effectively, among other things, you're creating space for incubation. And, yeah. and Bluma Zignarik is a Russian psychologist who uh, – there's actually an effect named after her, the Zignaric effect, which demonstrates that if you tell yourself a problem is not solved, it remains in your working memory and you continue to work on it. But it only works. You can only trigger the Zignarik effect if you say the problem is not solved. Right, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so kind of structurally building that into how we approach problems, it just increases your likelihood of a breakthrough. Right, ultimately, it's you know the, one of the most famous studies that I love, uh, longitudinal studies of creativity, was conducted by a World War II spy master named Donald McKinnon. Okay, and what McKinnon found, uh, he wanted to study productive creativity, so he studied architects actually, because he felt it was a nice balance of aesthetics. And kind of, you know, things like seismic forces and gravity, right? You have to be practical too. And as he studied architects and the most eminent, most successful architects, and he contrasted them with their less successful counterparts, two things kind of stood out as the, as the distinguishing characteristic of the most successful. First, we don't have time for it. They, they were way more likely to play than their counterparts, okay? That's like a subject of an entirely other mm-hmm. podcast. The one that's relevant to the conversation now is they were way more likely to delay decisions than their less breakthrough counterparts. Hmm. And basically what you see, what McKinnon demonstrated there is, and what you see is by delaying decisions, they open themselves up to more inspiration, to more input, to more information. And the people and it, by the way, you look at a guy like Frank Lloyd Wright, who famously designed some of the most iconic, you know, architecture of the 20th century. The story of Falling Water is he didn't approach the drafting table for weeks until the client called saying, we want to see drawings. We're on our way to the office.
0: Oh interesting. So I was gonna that was gonna be my follow-up. It's like, well, how do we how do we do this? Because I feel like we've been programmed in a way for that delayed uh, decision as well as that incubation time to actually feel very not normal.
1: <laughs> right. Unproductive, unpro- unprofessional. Exactly. Well, to me, part of the part of the normalization process is that like Frank Lloyd Wright took two naps a day. Yeah. He did all right. Okay. (laughs) And we take a nap and we hope nobody knows. And we like, you know, even I don't want my wife to know when I'm taking a nap. And it's like, forget my coworkers. Right. (laughs) I'm gonna get dragged into, into, you know, house, you know, like, uh, like helping with the groceries or, you know, all sorts of stuff. Right. But uh, we have to recognize what is effective is not necessarily efficient. And the goal, like innovation is not efficient and our goal shouldn't be to be efficient. But the problem is our kind of default biases and how we get institutionalized are we're radically institutionalized around efficiency. Mm-hmm. And I think stories like Frank Lloyd Wright or, you know, Joyce Carol Oates, I love this. She said anytime she's stuck on a plot twist or a piece of dialogue that she can't resolve, she said in an interview with uh, Tim Ferriss, I love this. She said, there's always an idea waiting for me on the hill behind my house. I just got to go walk up the hill and get it. Uh, That's a yeah. very poetic way of saying she takes a walk, right? Yeah. Very poetic. But the point is that some plot lines, and you can take a plot line as a metaphor for a work challenge, Some plot lines can't be resolved at the computer. Mm -hmm. And if, and you know, if you zoom out or if a stranger or a passerby watches Joyce Carol Arts walking up the hill, what do they think? Slacker, you know, why? Because our definitions of work are so exceptionally narrow. And what we have to see is if we want to prioritize effective problem solving, we have to broaden some of our definitions. We have to see perhaps the most needful thing for me to do is actually take a walk. Yeah. Or perhaps the most needful thing for me to do is to take a nap or to pull the weeds, right? My friend Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor, you know, amazing mm-hmm. mentor to CEOs all around Silicon Valley, she said she regularly likes to pull the weeds, just gives her kind of space to think, right? And to me, it's a wonderful example. These stories have to become part of innovation lore. That's part of what I wanted to do with the book, right? At least the last chapter, I think, if you, if you get it there at some point.
0: Yeah. Well, is this, is this where Ogilvy, there's a beautiful line. There's a beautiful line with David Ogilvy about just
1: how, you know, uh, on allowing his mind to rest. Yes. Yes. Well, he says, you know, famous, I actually just tweeted this the other day, just, you know, you you find yourself revisiting some of these quotes. He said something to the effect of most businessmen are incapable of original thinking because they cannot escape the tyranny of reason. (sighs) Wow. Powerful stuff. But but if we if we work if we live and breathe in workplaces that exalt reason above all, we shouldn't be surprised when there's no original thinking, right? Because mm-hmm. it's got this tyrannical hold on us, right? If it's not reasonable, why bother, right? And what we have to be able to do is kind of go beyond the bounds. I mean, not to sound too philosophical, we got to allow, allow ourselves to go beyond the bounds of reason, or you know, to go back to this idea of qualities. I think it's more uh, aligned with us we got to go back to this idea of, of bad ideas. Mm-hmm. And those are, they're unreasonable, right? But like Steve jobs, we think of Steve jobs. Nobody thinks that's an idiot. You know, you, you may disagree with his management tactics or, you know, personality sure. or whatever. But when you think about the kind of disruption and category redefinition and customer delight that he was responsible for, you go, well, how does he do that? How does he have so many, how does one person have so many incredible ideas? Well, one thing that few people realize is every day he'd sit down with Johnny Ive, Sir Johnny Ive now, his head of design. And what Johnny said at Steve's memorial service is Steve would regularly say, Hey, Johnny, you want to hear a dopey idea? And Johnny said most of the time they were pretty dopey. In yeah. fact, sometimes they were truly terrible. But every once in a while they take the ah out of the room and leave us breathless in Wanda. Right. That's <laughs> yeah. only Sir Johnny Ive can say. Right. Yeah, yeah. But the point is. The point is Steve Jobs didn't just have delightful ideas. He had dopey ideas too, but he let himself not only have them, but share them with the world's greatest designer ideas that he thought were dopey. Right. And if you, if you think about the efficiency of those daily lunches, probably very low efficiency. On a kind of on a meeting by meeting basis, if you think about the cumulative effectiveness of that environment and that willingness to be dopey and, or to be unreasonable to use, you know, the Ogilvy phrase, then you start to see, oh, it's not always this straight line, highly efficient process that yields the breakthrough. And Mm -hmm. then you start to give yourself, you know what, what if I take a walk, right? Yeah. Yeah. But this is when, like, this is where the
0: power of, of zooming out and looking at, like, an entire, let's call it a, an entire body of work, or we can we can look at our life as well. Like, we're, you know, we're so, we're I, I can't even say we're in a chapter. We're often in, like, the paragraph of the chapter and so focused on what's happening, what's next, what, you, you know, I'm making the right moves. But if you just pause for a second and, and zoom out and me. Okay, like I'm gonna roll with this, or I'm gonna ideate, or I'm gonna whatever it is, and just create the space. Then, in the grand scheme of things, like then it all comes together. We give ourselves the permission to to have that kind of perspective,
1: right? Um, one one thing, if I may, yeah. there, which I think is is powerful, is think about practice. Mm. You know, there are all sorts of practices in vogue today, which is great. One practice that I feel is so simple and utterly neglected is the practice of generating alternatives as uh, tell me a more. mental exercise, very simply. So the idea, we call it idea quota in the book, but the basic premise is our default orientation is to find the answer, you know, quote unquote, hmm. the answer, um, it just generally towards any problem. What should the subject line of this email be? How should I give this feedback? How should I open the presentation? We work and think as if there is a right answer, right? But this is not mathematics. There's way more than one right answer to the problems we're facing. By the way, as an aside, mathematicians I know tell me that math problems have more than one right answer, which is deeply troubling. But (laughs) the point is, the problems we're facing, you and me, Mark, it's not like one right answer. And so, okay, given that every problem I'm facing probably has many potential answers, am I practiced in exploring those? And what we say is on a daily basis, you should be in the daily habit, you know, every 24 hours of – Interrupting is what Luch, Abraham Luchin's called it, of introducing an interrupt where instead of the default orientation of I'm looking for, quote unquote, the answer, mm-hmm. shifting your goal and saying, I'm looking for 10 answers. I'm looking for 10 possible answers. I, I'll give an example oh, from my like personal that. life if it, if it just makes it come home. So the other night, um, I come in from work and my wife is, uh, she's cleaning up a bunch of glass. I said, hey, what, what happened? She, she said, well... The girl slammed the door and it shattered this window. And it's like, by the way, our house is, you know, built in like 1908. So it's like a hundred year old window shattered everywhere, irreplaceable. Right. Um, yeah. And maybe that's why, by the way, uh, why they don't put windows in bathroom doors anymore. I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) but there's glass everywhere. And, you know, besides like the bummer of, you know, we can't replace it. And besides the inconvenience of now we're spending 30 minutes cleaning up a bunch of glass everywhere. Um, and thank God, you know, we didn't have to go to the hospital. Nobody was injured. There's also the question now, and you could say problem to us as parents of what should the consequence of this be? Mm, oh boy! You know? <laughs> do we just do we gloss over it? Do we give them you know uh, you know time out or you know or ground them or that is objectively a problem for which there are a thousand answers, right? But in that moment, you know, I I'll, I remember I'm looking into the you know living room right now. I I remember looking standing in the kitchen going. What are we going to do? And we're just like, you know, we're both banging our <laughs> foreheads. And it's like, anytime you find yourself banging your forehead, do an idea quota. Do the practice wow. of generating alternatives. And you know what I did? I actually, I I wrote a little chat bot to kind of basically walk me through it because I need that objectivity myself. But I did this idea quota with this chat bot where it generates 10 ideas and it gives you some prompts and things like that. And no kidding, Mark, the 10th idea was Way beyond anything I ever would have thought of before. You know, you have a very kind of short list of consequences for household misbehavior, right? Yes. But there are times where it's like, none of those consequences seem like they really fit or are the best solution. And no kidding, my 10th idea was like a total delight to me. And I never would have got there if I hadn't just had that interrupt of when I bang my forehead, try to generate volume first. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh. a practice anybody can develop that as a practice as an awareness
0: well so that I wanted to ask you that like for you personally um, because so much of what you've what you've uh, shared with us so far like just to me directly fits into different mental fitness practices and are beneficial obviously for uh, generating you know uh, multiple ideas or alternatives, but also I think very beneficial for the health of our minds and just keeping our minds clear and focused and intentional and all that stuff. Right. Which is a a lot of, uh, my work. So I'm curious for you, like, what are some, what are some of your non-negotiables, uh, when it comes to any kind of practices or rituals to, you know, just prime your mind or keep your mind clear and, and, and thriving.
1: Non-negotiables. Um, you mean in terms of my, my day, how I think about structuring my day?
0: Structuring or, you know, if you have some practices, things that you do that are, you know, paramount. Like for me, uh, journaling is a huge practice. Uh, taking a 10-minute walk after lunch without a podcast or an audio book is a big one. That's cool. Uh, and yeah. they evolve obviously, but just, and, and the idea is not, um, Jeremy is the idea is not to try to provide some sort of recipe for the listeners, but more so just ideas that then they can think, oh yeah, I can, I can work that into my routine. Like that resonates with me.
1: Uh, a couple things, you know, for me are non-negotiables. One is I'm a person of faith. So I read the yeah. scriptures every single day, not as a rule, but as like a, a, sure. a priority. Yeah. Um, and so that's the, the tone, the, right? It totally sets the tone. It totally reminds me of things that I want to be reminded of, you know, principles that are, that transcend whatever kind of I'm dealing with or working on that moment. So that's why, and I, I typically, I learned, you know, my eldest daughter, I think after she, I have four daughters. um, And after my eldest was born, I realized maybe three or four months in, I'm feeling off. And I realized it's because I was waking up when she woke up. And there was no, and, you know, as, as, you know, many listeners, I'm sure will know when it, when you have a baby, there's, they don't stop having needs as long as they're awake. And so yeah. I'm basically waking up to a needy person all the time. And I realized then, unless I get up before the needs start being imposed upon me, I'm not going to be able to attend to my, you know, in this case, spiritual yeah. needs. So I started that, um, that kind of daily ritual now, um, you know, over a decade ago.
0: I'm going That's to pause. They, oh, just one second. I'm going to pause you there because anyone. I mean, I resonate with the 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 kid example, but anyone that doesn't have kids, a substitute to that is waking up to your email or notifications to something. Essentially, totally. same track. Sorry, continue.
1: Yeah, I mean, what a uh the red bubbles, right? It's just like yeah. get out of here. Yeah. Um. The the other thing for me, like a regular thing, is every day around lunchtime, I do a 10 minute hit workout. Oh, nice. Super short, just because I don't have time to go to the gym. But what I've noticed is I start kind of dragging. And for a while, I thought, oh, I need a nap. And by the way, I mean, I I, I value napping for cognitive benefits and all that stuff. But what I found is I would just kind of feel, uh, you know, in my life in general. And what I realized is a short workout delivered basically the same refreshing benefit to my body as a nap. Um, meaning I felt just as invigorated, just as, you know, ready to go, but it, it had a different kind of long-term cumulative impact. Sure. And so that to me is a, is, is a non-negotiable. I almost every day before I eat lunch, will bang out a quick workout and then I, you know, make a protein shake for lunch.
0: Okay. Do you have uh do you have any evening wind down flows or anything like that? That's been helpful for you?
1: You know, um, I think, uh, Reed Hastings, the or sorry, Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn. Uh, he says, "I never go to sleep without giving my subconscious a problem to work on." Oh, um, yeah. And I think it's it's really you know to value one subconscious is a really profound thing. For me, practically, what that looks like is I keep a stack of post its on my bedside table and a and a sharpie. Okay. And I've just made an agreement with myself: um, if an idea strikes me, it's worth disrupting my sleep to write it down. Okay. And if you look at like BF Skinner, by the way, you know, like founder of behavioral psychology, he actually set an alarm at midnight and 1am every night because he loved the ideas that came to him in that state. He woke up at midnight, he would had a clipboard and a pen flashlight, and he would write for an hour and then go back to bed at one when the next alarm went off. So but anyway, that I don't I don't go that far. (laughs) Yeah, but what I've said is, okay, in my mind, I'm agreeing with myself if there is an idea or a solution that strikes me, I'm going to write it down. And yeah. that's a challenging commitment to make actually, because the covers are so warm and you sure. know you don't want to really get out of your sleep, but I'll, but I'll never forget when this was crystallized for me. It's working on a big project at Stanford. And there's a big question about how do we, how do we kind of guide learners through a particular part of this journey? And it was unresolved and we hadn't figured it out. And I was kind of noodling on it uh, that night. And as I'm dozing off, an awesome answer so, you know presents itself. Um, but my thought was, I'm just about to sleep. There's yeah. no way I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna chant it to myself like a mantra a few times, and surely I'll remember it in the morning. And then you know I did that, but I was already a little disrupted, and I didn't want to be a hypocrite. I don't like telling people to do something I'm not willing to do. So I go, okay. I'm going to turn over, write it down. So I turned over in the pitch black, dark, reach for my pen. You know, I don't know if I'm writing up or down or whatever, write it down on a post-it note. And then, and then I have trouble falling asleep. So if like I 10 minutes, I'm just resenting this practice. Yeah. I can't believe I did this, you know? Da, da, da. Well, anyway, I wake up in the morning, next morning, no kidding. My first thought is of my solution. And my second thought is, what a waste. I can't believe I did that. That is so dumb. I, I knew I'd remember, you know, And so I grabbed the post-it to throw it away, and I look at it. It's a totally different idea than the idea I woke up thinking about. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And now I've got two amazing solutions to the problem, right? But if you had given me a lie detector, I would have sworn that the idea that I woke up thinking about was the idea I wrote down the night before. It was that that, uh, deeply entrenched a belief. So powerful. You might
0: have already uh, captured this uh, since, you have the, since you have my book, but the first, the first chapter, and I learned this from, from him, Cal Fussman, he, uh, he had left this one with me, and I use this all the time. I feel like you'll like this one because he was a longtime writer for Esquire magazine, and he just shared that. He's like, you know, Mark, I never go, I never start a piece without having something in my mind. And um, uh, they more about
1: that. What what do you have to have in your mind?
0: Well, just like he, he said, I'll, I'll never just stare at like a blinking, uh, you know, cursor with a, a a blank screen, and I don't know what to write. I'll I'll leave it. And then he said, I'll go to I'll I'll prepare to go to sleep, and I'll write down in a journal what do I want to say. Go to sleep. Wake up. Have a glass of water. First thing I do, as soon as I wake up, as I answer that question. And I have just found, what and you know, that's that's a, a writing, I mean, that's it could cool. be writing, it yeah. could be anything, but I just find if you have a question on your mind you just write it down, I'm always amazed that, you know, seven or eight hours later, all of a sudden after fresh sleep, you have a page of yes. insight. And it's, it's like, powerful. it's like laying a
1: magnet out, you know, yeah. it's like, I'm going to put this magnet here and just see if any needles walk by in the night, you know, yeah. and the, and you wake up and it's like, where do all those needles come from, right?
0: Yeah, well, and I, if, at least for me, I wake up excited because I'm like, I know that that's going to happen now, and it's almost it's almost a bit of a ritual of okay, here's the question, and the questions change obviously depending on what's going on, but then yeah, let's yeah. let's go, and it's it's also just a beautiful way to start the day because your mind is just primed and, and ready to ready to rock. So yeah, I have yeah, to add the right. post its yeah. though. I like that. Oh man! Well, I could. I, I want to respect your time. I mean, we we could obviously jam forever. Uh, for for everyone listening, I mean, we we obviously just scratched the surface on uh, on the book Idea Flow. So I highly recommend. I'll I'll put this in the show notes for everyone to pick it up. Um, I've generated ideas, just reading idea flow, uh, which probably is, is somewhat of an objective, but I, I feel like there's just a beautiful process, um, that, that the book, um, provides as well as I love, uh, one thing we didn't talk about is just the fact that, you know, you can measure your, your ideas in a simple calculation, which is, uh, which is awesome mm-hmm. for any of those analytical folks out there. And you want to see progress as you're testing these different things. Um, but you know in general i mean i'd highly recommend follow along where where can people follow you jeremy to see what you're doing what you're working on what's coming next and all that what's the best where's the best place
1: yeah as as i mentioned i i try to blog every single day so i've got just a website that I maintain myself. So I don't have a, you know, webmaster or anything. I'm my own webmaster, which sure. means it's poorly <laughs> mastered. Um, but jeremyutley.design and I blog there every day uh, and post podcasts and things like that there. And then we've got a book website, ideaflow.design is where you can go to find information on the book. We've got a free chapter, a bonus chapter there called how to think like Bezos and Jobs. Mm. Because the truth is that what's different about breakthrough thinkers is how they think. Yeah. And that's a learnable trait, right? You can learn how to think in a different kind of a way. And so that's a free chapter we put there. The truth be told, our our editor said, okay, there's a few too many references to Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs here. You got to pull <laughs> some of that material out, find different references. But it's there's so many great stories. We go, okay, yeah. we're gonna give you a bonus chapter because it's just it's the stuff they do is so good and so cool. And it's imminently learnable, is the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the one, the one thing, just like as a teaser, there. The one thing I would say is, Steve Jobs had a fantastic knack for seeking inspiration. You know, you might hear that word inspiration and think, "Oh, you mean like a cheesy poster on the hallway, you know, of like a, a salmon swimming into a grizzly bear's mouth, and it says courage, right?" No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's not what I mean by inspiration. Like for a designer, the way we define inspiration is, it's the disciplined pursuit of unexpected input.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: And Steve Jobs, when he would encounter a challenge, you know, famously, you know, he he was really frustrated by the original design of the Mac. It was like metallic and ugly. He didn't like it. And he just got up and he went to Macy's and he starts walking around Macy's and he got to the quiz and art section and he grabbed a, a, you know, food mixer and he bought it and he brought it back to the design team and he said, it should be like this you know and yeah. the point is not you know the answers in the uh, kitchen appliance tile the point is <laughs> the answer is getting out and saying i've got to i've got to be thoughtful about seeking new inputs if yeah. i'm dissatisfied with this what inputs are going to influence my thinking and that's mm-hmm. something that we call the inspiration discipline, but having that, that sense of an instinct, right? There are a bunch of these instincts that just like a, just like an athlete has instincts around where to cut or when to jump or things like that. Somebody who's nurturing this innovation muscle and capacity develops some of these instincts and they're eminently learnable instincts. It just requires a little bit of attention and practice like we talked about earlier. So yeah. I hope it, the book's a help. I hope it's a great resource for folks and it's a pleasure to get to chat with you about it today. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. And thank you for your, the, your, your effort and your energy and the work that you put out into this world. I mean, there's just such a beautiful ripple effect that, uh, we all get to experience and it just keeps, you know, magnitude or, 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 or expanding, I should say, uh, over and over again. So thank you for, for that.